They're one of the most influential rock acts of all time. In fact, Rolling Stone magazine names them as the 30th greatest musical artist ever. Today on Reactions to the Classics, it's 25 things about Nirvana. What's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Sean Holmes. And today on Reactions to the Classics, we have our 25 things about Nirvana. And as you can well imagine, I came up with some pretty interesting stories in the research for this trio out of Seattle. But before we get into those 25 things, let's just give a quick background on Nirvana themselves. Of course, in their best-known formation, they were made up of singer and guitarist Kurt Cobain, drummer Dave Grohl, who's gone on to front the Foo Fighters for over two decades, and bassist Chris Novoselic. Now, Kurt and Chris met at high school in Aberdeen, Washington, where the band was originally based. Kurt was, of course, the chief songwriter, wrote almost all of the music, and we're going to get into that in a little while because that did cause some issues. Why were they called Nirvana? Well, Kurt said that he wanted a name that didn't sound like a punk name, something raunchy. He wanted something that was beautiful or nice. Interesting because before they were Nirvana, they were also known as Skid Row. No, not that Skid Row, Sebastian Bach. Ted, Ed, Fred, and Fecal Matter. So that probably didn't look that great on T-shirts, although they might have sold like crazy back in the day. And the term nirvana is in the religion Buddhism, and its just definition is the ultimate spiritual goal of attaining a state of enlightenment. And I don't know if that was really behind the meaning of it. Kurt never really said much about that. The other thing I think about when I just hear nirvana is, is the icon, right? Is the trademark. The doodle of the yellow face on a black background with crossed out eyes and a wobbly smile. That's what everyone knows. You see it on stuff. You go buy a t-shirt right now in Target in 2020 that has that very logo. But legend has it that Kurt drew it for a flyer announcing a Nevermind album launch party in Seattle in September of 1991. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get to it. The 25 things about Nirvana. Number one, in 1988, Nirvana inked a deal with Seattle indie label Sub Pop, releasing their first single, Love Buzz, which was a cover of a song by Dutch band called Shocking Blue. They released it as a seven-inch single. Now, Sub Pop put out the disc, but remained unconvinced in Nirvana and actually hit up Kurt for the $200 needed to first release it. Nowadays, we don't need anything to release stuff. We just send it out on streaming. But still, 200 bucks to release a single is pretty cheap. In that same vein, number two, Nirvana's first album cost $606.17 to make. The album Bleach was released on June 15, 1989 to initially modest sales and lukewarm reviews. It had sold just 40,000 copies by the time Nirvana put out their second album, Nevermind. But eventually, Bleach became Sub Pop's all-time bestseller, moving well more than a million units since its release. I bet they were ecstatic. Now, guitarist Jason Everman didn't play on Bleach, Nirvana's first album, but was added to the band to add a second guitar to the mix soon after. However, Jason was the only one with the real job. So they would hit up Jason for that $606.17, and he paid it, and that's how that first album came out. Unfortunately, he didn't hang around with the band too long because he had a withdrawn attitude, just like Kurt did. It said their similar dispositions while on tour resulted in a severe lack of band chemistry. However, Jason had a knack because he kind of failed upward, at least for a little bit. He became the bass player for Soundgarden, but or he was fired from that gig after one tour. 
before Soundgarden really made it big. But this guy really had a knack for achieving stuff because there was a story on Jason in the New York Times Magazine back in 2013 where it was reported that he joined the Army's 2nd Ranger Battalion and then the Special Forces. He served tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he's received a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Columbia University. So this guy, he didn't, he didn't rest on any of his failures, man. He just kept moving on. Number three, Sonic Youth encouraged DGC to sign Nirvana. In Charles R. Cross's Kurt Cobain biography, Heavier Than Heaven, which is fantastic, by the way, he notes that Kurt saw Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth as, quote, just short of royalty. Kurt, Kurt loved them. Having been huge fans of Sonic Youth, Cobain was honored to have Nirvana be the opening act on Sonic Youth's 1991 summer tour. The respect and admiration was mutual, and Sonic Youth had urged both their management company, Gold Mountain, and also their major label, DGC, to sign Nirvana. It always helps, ladies and gentlemen, to have an advocate out there on your side. Now we're going to get a few facts about the iconic Nevermind. Number four, Nevermind's original title was Sheep. See, Kurt had a good idea that this album might go over huge and in turn Nirvana might go over huge. So playing into that idea, he originally called the band's sophomore effort Sheep, which was based off an inside joke about how the masses would flock to their album. He even mocked up a fake advertisement with the slogan, quote, because you want to not because everyone else is. Kurt had that sarcasm. There is no doubt about it. Number five, Dave Grohl is not the only drummer on Nevermind. See, when Nirvana began the original smart studio sessions for Nevermind with Butch Vig, Chad Channing, the drummer featured on most of the debut album, Bleach, was still in the band. His contribution to Polly remains on the album, though it was uncredited on the original release, which, by the way, is a big no-no. But Dave would actually be the band's fifth and final drummer. See, Bob McFadden was the first drummer to ever pick up the sticks for Nirvana, but he only lasted a month. After Bob came Aaron Burkhardt, who drifted away from the band when they moved out of Aberdeen. At this point, the band started playing with Melvin's drummer, Dale Crover, who appeared on Nirvana's first demos back in 88. But Crover left shortly after, at which point Dave Foster joined until he got sent to jail a few months later. That's a long story I won't get into. It was at this point that a mutual friend introduced him to Chad Channing, who stuck around long enough to make it through the Bleach sessions. However, Kurt and Chris were left cold by Channing's drumming abilities throughout the sessions. Amid growing frustrations and not being able to contribute to the songwriting process, Chad left. He was briefly replaced by Mud Honey drummer Dan Peters, then Dale Crover again before Grohl joined the ranks. I hope you're paying attention. I'm going to quiz you on the end at that. You're going to have to put them in numerical order. <laughs> Number six. Butch Vig convinced Kurt to double track his vocals on Nevermind because, quote, John Lennon did it. See, Butch was inspired by the late Beatles producer George Martin, and John Lennon's use of the technique was what convinced Cobain to feel comfortable with it. He was reluctant to do so because he thought it sounded too fake. But after Butch brought up the Lennon connection, Cobain, quote, pretty much double tracked all the vocals after that. Now, later, Kurt claimed to resent the mainstream radio-friendly production of the hugely successful album, poetically and timelessly describing it in 1993 as, quote, candy ass. Number seven, the album cover was inspired by Cobain's interest in water births. Now, the, obviously, the album cover is very iconic, but Kurt's fascination with birth and pregnancy 
is well documented, visible in his journals, and of course, in the cover and name of their final album, In Utero. After watching a documentary on water births with Grohl, Kurt wanted to feature a picture of a water birth on the cover, though it was deemed too graphic by the record label. Instead, they went to a pool for babies with photographer Kirk Weddle, who captured a shot of his friend's son, Spencer Eldon, swimming towards a dollar bill on a hook. Kurt refused to compromise on editing out Eldon's, you know, private parts for certain stores. And if you look online, uh, Spencer Eldon's recreated this as he's gotten older and put up side-by-side pictures of, of this actual iconic picture. Number eight, Kurt Cobain dropped out of high school, then worked there as a janitor. He worked as a janitor at Weatherwax High School not long after dropping out of that very school. So that would be a little bit awkward, but hey, man, you got to eat, right? The dancing janitor in the Smells Like Teen Spirit music video was an inside joke for those who knew of Kurt's story and his old job. Speaking of that song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, number nine, was inspired by Kurt's girlfriend's deodorant and, of course, alcohol. See, Kurt came up with the title when his friend Kathleen Hanna wrote Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on his wall. Hannah meant that Kurt smelled like the deodorant teen spirit, which his then-girlfriend Toby Vale wore. Kurt said he was unaware of the deodorant until months after the single was released, and it interpreted it as a revolutionary slogan as they had been discussing anarchism and punk rock. So you know what? Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Sometimes the things we don't know uh, inspires us to our greatest creativity. Kurt hated Smells Like Teen Spirit eventually, and oftentimes he'd intentionally butcher it when they were playing it live, or they would leave it off the set list altogether. Can you imagine going to a Nirvana concert, waiting the whole time, keep thinking, ah, they're going to play this last, then they don't play it last week? Well, of course, it's going to be part of the encore, and then they just never play it. I would not have been real happy, but Kurt always went to the beat of his own drum. Number 10, Kurt was actually homeless after finishing Nevermind. See, shortly after they finished recording Nevermind, Kurt went home and discovered that he had been evicted. He didn't have any money. He was gone for a little while. He goes home, and uh, he finds all his stuff outside his apartment. He spent several weeks living in his car. Even his Nevermind started taking off, becoming a hit beyond his wildest dreams. He actually went on record later, said they got $175,000 for the record deal with DGC. But after paying everyone, he only got about twenty grand, which he said he then put into gear. So he didn't have anything left. Eventually, he would move back in with his mom for a little while until those royalty checks started rolling in. Number 11, Polly on the Nevermind album was actually based on a true story. He wrote it in 1987 after reading an article about the torture and rape of a 14-year-old girl. Kurt said he chose to write the song from the perspective of the girl, inventing the name Polly to aid in a consistent, innocent-sounding bird metaphor. After hearing the song, the man himself, Bob Dylan, said of Kurt, quote, that kid has heart. No higher praise than, in my opinion, the greatest lyricist in history, throwing you a little compliment there. Number 12, the band was thrown out of their own record release party for Nevermind. On a Friday the 13th, Geffen threw the band a record release party. Kurt started a full-fledged food fight when he threw ranch dressing at Chris, and a bouncer responded by grabbing the two and Dave Grohl and throwing them out. The band then stood in the alley behind the club and talked to their friends through the window before moving the party to a friend's place where Kurt 
shot a fire extinguisher, and the place had to be evacuated. But guess what? Kurt wasn't done yet. They went on to another venue where he completed the destruction trifecta by tossing a gold record plaque by the group Nelson into a microwave after proclaiming it an affront to humankind. Now, I didn't see if that he actually started that microwave, and I have no idea what would happen uh, in that instance, but everyone was still alive afterwards, so I'm assuming it turned out all right. Number 13, Weird Al Yankovic asked for Nirvana's permission to write Smells Like Nirvana in their Saturday Night Live dressing room. See, three events happened on this day on January 11, 1992, proved that Nirvana had completely made the unprecedented transition from underground punk band to universally beloved supergroup. Nevermind was number one for the first time on that day's Billboard 200 albums chart. The band made their Saturday Night Live debut performing Smells Like Teen Spirit and Territorial Pissings on the Rob Moore hosted late night show. And I mean, you, you have arrived, guys, when you have got on Saturday Night Live. Every iconic act almost in history has been on there at least once. And to the joy of the band, they got a phone call from Weird Al Yankovic. Grohl went on to say in 2011, that was the craziest weekend because we get there and the first time you see the SNL studio, it's tiny. You imagine it being this big thing, but honestly, it's tiny. It's so small. The energy is crazy and people are running around and it goes so quickly. And one of the cast members comes up and says, hey, I'm friends with Weird Al Yankovic and he wants to talk to you about doing one of your songs. And so I think we talked to him in the dressing room of SNL. He called on the phone. You know you've arrived when Weird Al calls you. It was pretty huge and he did a really good job, which kudos to them because as seriously as Kurt especially oftentimes took himself, that he allowed Weird Al to do that because there's been artists that, that have not allowed Weird Al to do his brilliant work. Number 14, In Utero was initially going to be titled I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. Also probably wouldn't have looked good on T-shirts, but their album titles tended to evolve over time. Uh, their first album was recorded under their operating title, Too Many Humans until Cobain saw a sign in San Francisco that said to, quote, bleach your works. I already mentioned Nevermind started out as sheep. Even this title was intended as a joke. Chris pointed out to Cobain that he was opening himself up to tons of potential lawsuits, and the idea was dropped, I guess, because if people were going to take their life, they might have said they were listening to the album, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. I don't know, but it was smart to change that for sure. Number 15, Kurt used to string his guitars with piano strings because they are thicker. Uh, a couple strings, he would use those piano strings. It would give him a better sound and what he wanted, kind of that unique sound that he had. So that was pretty brilliant on his part. Number 16, MTV really did not want your Nirvana to play their song Rate Me at the VMAs. See, Nirvana was causing nothing but trouble at the 1992 VMAs, and naturally their choice of song was one big issue. MTV told them, of course, they wanted to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. The band responded by saying that they were respectfully going to remember the clout they had earned over the past year and premiere a brand new song called Rape Me Instead. Now, the network pretty much freaked out over this. They weren't only scared by the title, but somewhat correctly surmised that the song was about them, actually. The network countered that if the band played Rape Me on the live telecast, that they would fire Amy Fennerty, who was an employee Kurt Cobain was close friends with, and would stop playing the band's videos altogether. Although both parties agreed on lithium as a compromise, 
MTV didn't trust Cobain, and their paranoia proved to be well-founded when the band launched into the first few chords of Rape Me. The control room was ready to go directly to commercial. At the last possible second, they were about to press that button, but Nirvana stopped the sneak preview to play the memorable version of Lithium, which ended with Chris hitting himself in the head with his bass and Kurt and Dave sarcastically saying hello to Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses, who they could not stand. Number 17, Nevermind was recorded in the same studio as Fleetwood Mac's Rumors was in 1977. Number 18, in 1992, Nirvana was set to perform at a big stadium in Buenos Aires, but they were infuriated when they saw their opening act, an all-girl band named Calamity Jane, pelted with mud and bottles from the disrespectful audience. Kurt said, let's just leave and not even play. But Chris had a better idea. They took to the stage and teased the audience with opening riffs of their popular work, but then switching to all their least known songs. The audience was predictably outraged, but Kurt later reflected on that concert as, quote, one of the greatest experiences I have ever had. Number 19, Nirvana Smash. See, one trait that Nirvana had was destroying their equipment at the end of their live performances. According to Chris, he and Kurt had started doing that out of frustration with previous drummer Chad Channing. Chad would often get songs wrong, which infuriated his fellow band members. But Chris said later they would continue doing this in order to get off the stage sooner, right? If you're kind of over it, all you got to do is smash your instruments. You can't really come back for an encore, right? Because you got nothing to play. Number 20, Kurt hated video director Sam Bayer's original cut of Smells Like Teen Spirit. He hated it so much he flew back to Los Angeles to personally edit the iconic video, telling MTV News that, quote, it looked like a Time Life commercial to me, so he, quote, threw in a few things which pretty much saved it. Well, I don't know exactly what he did, but it's a good thing he did something because that is the whole reason why Nirvana got over initially. Number 21, Nirvana refused to support the Guns N' Roses Metallica Stadium Tour. Axl Rose personally requested Nirvana as support on this 92 tour after Nevermind hit big. But Cobain refused, saying of GNR, quote, they're really talentless people and they write crap music. Number 22, on that note, Kurt Cobain really, really hated Axl Rose. So much that it harkens a story from the 1992 VMAs that I've already referenced where they were causing issues. During rehearsals, Kurt did something to the piano that Axel was going to later play November Rain on during the ceremonies. Now, of course, Elton John was going to join on stage with Axel. So there was two pianos up there. And legend has it that Kurt either urinated on it, did some other stuff on the piano keys. I came across all different kinds of stories, but he did something to that piano. But legend has it, according to his horror, when they when they were watching backstage, him and, and Courtney Love, when they were watching backstage, uh, Elton actually sat down <laughs> at that piano that uh, Kurt did something to. So, oops on that one. Sorry about that, Elton. Number 23. This is a big one. Nirvana almost split up over Nevermind royalties. See, in March 1992, Kurt decided that he wanted a larger share of royalties since he was more involved in writing Nirvana's music than Chris or Dave were. His bandmates were okay with the decision until Kurt said he wanted to apply it retroactively to Nevermind. This caused a lot of tension. They almost broke up. They ended up working it out, and 
reportedly Kurt earned 75% of royalties from there on in, including Nevermind, which of course was a ton of money because that album sold over 30 million copies. Number 24, the hidden track Endless Nameless was mistakenly left off the first 50,000 copies. See, the track starts several minutes after the conclusion of Something in the Way. It was an improvised noise jam captured when the engineer kept the tape running after a botched attempt at recording lithium. An error at the pressing plant caused the omission originally. They realized it. They went there and put it back in. But if you have one of those 50,000 records that didn't have it on there it's worth just a little bit of money so you might want to check out ebay and finally 25 kurt cobain was supposedly offered the role of the heroin dealer in pulp fiction courtney love claims director quentin tarantino personally asked kurt to play the part of lance that went to eric stoltz which is why tarantino comma quentin was thanked in the liner notes to their Nevermind follow-up in utero and you just kind of wonder if kurt would have been able to take that path go the hollywood route a little bit maybe things would have turned out a little different for him. But that's going to do it today, ladies and gentlemen, for the 25 things about Nirvana. Hope you enjoyed this one. There will be many more coming up in this series. Well, everybody, that's going to do it for another episode of the Reactions to the Classics Music Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us. When you get an opportunity, hit that subscribe button on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. Also, when you get time, if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that'll help us out more than you can imagine. As always, if you want to reach me directly, you can hit me up at rttcyt at gmail.com. I promise to answer each and every one of those. We'll be dropping new episodes every Friday. Until then, stay safe, my friends.